Good morning. Let's get straight to markets. Take a look at the impact for the indices. Factual. Succinct. All you need to know before your trading day starts. Subscribe to our newsletter, CNBC's Daily Open. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the world of tech. I'm Tom Chitty and with me is CNBC's senior tech correspondent Arjun Karpal and joining us this week is a special guest, CNBC correspondent Karen Gilchrist. Since July last year, Karen has been investigating how Western technology, despite countless sanctions, is still entering Russia and being used by the country's military. We're going to find out how Russia is getting around the sanctions, what involvement China has had, and discuss whether tech companies should be more responsible for where and how their technology is used. Beyond the Valley. Great to have you with us, Karen. How does it feel? It's great First to be time. here. Yeah, yeah. Good. It is great to be here. First time debuting on BTV, but I'm BTV. happy to be here. We don't get a lot of that BTV, you know. Action. We should call it more. BTV. BTV, yeah. It's what the kids are doing. That is what the cool kids are doing. That's what I call it. I've called it that forever. Have you? Oh, yeah, maybe it's just sure. me. It's not you know, now grandpa it's over here. Becoming famous, you got to ramp that up. Yeah. Karen, before we get into the into the story, we are going to be playing uh, Stat of the Week. I know you're obviously a regular I'm familiar. listener. You're I'm re- familiar. You're a regular listener to this podcast. Yeah. So you do know what this entails. I do. I know how challenging it is, so I'm a bit scared. <laughs> I had a good run for a bit, and now I'm sort of struggled the last couple of weeks. I'm expecting a curveball. I'm trying to get in the mind of Arjun Karpal so I can preempt this. Well, it's usually kind of sometimes related, but it just might not be this week. So um, I don't know. It's <laughs> well. I've got I don't a lot know. to go on. Um, my number, $200 billion. 200 billion US dollars, that's my number. 200 billion US dollars, right? Yeah. Make note. There's lots of applications for that, so I feel like I can come up with a credible answer, but it might not be the right one. It will be. Re- it will sort of refer to what we're going to be talking about. I today. hope so. I really <laughs> hope so. Um, you just yeah. pluck these numbers. I just, yeah, well, about you know, 30 seconds before we start recording, <laughs> I furiously Google... Um, stat of the week and see what comes up. It's a professional job. Yeah, it really is. Um, Perfect. Um, But do remind our listeners that you can email in at beyondthevalley at cnbc.com and uh, we will respond to those emails. Karen, when we talk about the Russian military obtaining and using Western technology, we're not talking about laser-guided missiles or cutting-edge radar. This is technology found in everyday items that we all use, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's not some far-fetched kind of military appliances. They are everyday items, really, microchips that you'd find in your phones and your laptops, etc. And these are what's known as dual-use goods, meaning they have both military and civilian applications, which is really where they've become problematic for Western officials who have been trying to curb their flows into Russia, because, of course, they have different applications and it's not quite clear whether they are being used for the military or ordinary purposes and therefore they sort of are a bit more in a grey zone when it comes to sanctions. As this war between Russia and Ukraine has gone on, um, how how has sort of Russia sought to obtain goods? What are the kind of things they're looking to, to get their hands on? Um, what are some of those products? Yeah, so these are, like I say, they're the technologies that are used in 
items like drones, like missiles, like armoured vehicles. So it's kind of the technology that underlies those. So it is microchips, etc. And they historically don't have the kind of capabilities that these Western technologies have. So they are dependent on more the more advanced technologies still that Western companies are known for versus the kind of things that they can necessarily create back home. What, what's the wackiest like, item that you know, could be used by the Russian military and, and repurposed? The core thing is that the underlying technology is these chips, but there are reports to say, you know, Russia has been taking these chips out of everyday items like washing machines, etc. as well. So it's kind of these very ordinary items too, but they're just finding their, they're finding new purposes in military pieces. That's really interesting. You know, do you know, actually, I was reading a little bit about the kind of chips that go into sort of weapons and missiles and things, and they're actually not that advanced. Hence what Karen's saying about taking out a washing machine. They're not the cutting edge chips that are in your later smartphone, mm. which, you know, of incredibly difficult to manufacture, incredibly expensive, and, and are the most advanced chips on the planet. Um, these, that's, these that's are crazy dumb chips, think, yeah. not yeah. dumb chips, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> less intelligent chips. It is. Yeah, the applications they can have, I mean, it doesn't mean they'll be the most durable or sort of advanced, but they still serve a purpose, and that's essentially all Russia is concerned about at this stage. Uh, and so what have Western powers attempted to do so far to, to curb Russia's access to some of these technologies which they feel can can aid Russia's war effort? So they've implemented rounds and rounds of sanctions, trying increasingly to clamp down on the flows of these goods, so technology, military pieces. But they are finding that each time it's not really necessarily having the full effect. And so each round is intended to sort of close in on that. Can we just go back to when you first started reporting this? You know, how did you come across this this story? And give us a little bit of background on on the sanctions and kind of how that's played out. Sure. So I started delving into this around summertime last year um, when it became evident that these sanctions weren't really having the desired effect. You know, Russia was continuing its offensive in Ukraine um, and to, you know, some success. And so I wanted to start delving into the trade flows and seeing how it was sustaining itself. You know, these sanctions were intended to hobble not only the economy, but especially the military capabilities of Russia. And yet it didn't seem to be happening. And then, you know, we were seeing reports when I was looking into this to say that lots of Western origin items were actually being recovered from the battlefield in Ukraine. And that raised a lot of alarms as to how they were even getting there when these these sanctions were meant to be curbing that. Um, So I started looking into um, Russian trade data and I was seeing that there were still reports of these goods coming into the country, um, primarily through intermediary countries. So we're talking here mostly about China, Hong Kong, but also the United Arab Emirates and Turkey. So these are countries that don't actually have sanctions against Russia, but they are somehow become conduits to they become conduits to get these goods into uh, sorry into Russia. So almost as if basically Chinese or, or some of these other countries, third parties in those countries were, were buying these goods because they could. There was no obstruction for them to buy it and then selling them on effectively to Russia. Exactly. So there's one element where for a lot of these companies, as for just 
you know, business in general, the the supply chains are very complex for some of these companies. And so, you know, it may originate in a Western country that has sanctions on Russia, but then the manufacturing is done in a third country and then the distribution in another. And so that's where these supply chains become very opaque and a lot harder to sort of... Um, to enforce. Exactly, exactly. And so then there is the element of distributors in these third countries potentially being opportunistic or potentially, um, you know, working with the authorities in Russia to then um, re-navigate these products into the country. For China specifically, I think uh, in one of your reports, you report how there's been sort of booming trade basically between China and Russia um, yep. as well. Why Why China specifically? Well, China has a very particular relationship with Russia and it's spoken just before the onset of the war of its sort of no limits partnership with between the two countries. Um, and China has been very vocal in its lack of condemnation of the war and it is still a key t- trade partner of Russia's. And so... There's an extent to which it's stepped into this gap where the sanctions have come in and limited uh, Russia's ability to export and import from Western countries. China has used that as a sort of opportunity, really, to boost its trade with Russia. And, you know, we've seen extreme um, record highs of trade flows between the two countries in 2022 and in 2023. And so it's clear that they're just kind of filling the void that has been left by the sanctions around the rest of the world or parts of, I should say. Is there any way to enforce that from or, or to prevent that from happening? Well, yes. Yeah. So these sanctions are here to say that any company that does trade um, or is seen to be trading with Russia, with these sanctioned companies, will be obviously subject to um, harsh penalties. But the the fact is that because these trade flows are quite convoluted, it's difficult potentially for Western authorities to clamp down specifically on these companies because they can say, as many of them have done when I've spoken to them, you know, we've ceased trading with Russia, we're not doing this directly. And there's only so much we can do to prevent distributors from maybe kind of sidestepping those rules. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like any item that you buy online or buy in a shop, you can go and take and resell on eBay exactly. or wherever. Exactly. That uh, is one of the big problems. How can how can a company prevent that from happening? Yeah. It's, it's impossible. It's very, very difficult. Um, but those I've spoken to who have also been digging deep into this are saying, look, there just needs to be a hell of a lot more compliance um, from the companies and also just more transparency on their trade flows. They need to do a better job of checking each of these partners and and each of the distribution routes because at the end of the day, these are their products and they're being found on the battlefield in Ukraine. That's not an association they want to have. So they really need to do a better job of making sure that that's not happening. Yeah, I'd agree with Karen. I think I feel like they could do, do a lot better job at looking at their supply chain mm-hmm. uh, and the distribution. Yeah. And obviously, you can never guarantee where your product's going to end up, but yeah. there's a lot more you can do in terms of figuring out where your suppliers are ending up selling this. If you, of course, really care about yeah. where the products are going, Absolutely. I think that's part of the And if, the if there are all this, is there is all this documentation to say there are certain countries or companies within those countries that are major conduits to get these products to Russia, then maybe they should be thinking they shouldn't be manufacturing in these places. I mean, it's maybe a bit idealistic at this stage. Obviously, it's very complex and takes time, but they probably do need to think about 
rerouting these things. One of the big companies that's been caught up in this is DJI, right? Mm -hmm. I think the world's biggest probably commercial drone maker, yeah. uh, no doubt. A Chinese company based in, in Shenzhen, South China. Um, some of their drones have managed to find their way into Russia. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in some of my um, reporting in sort of September last year, I was delving through all sorts of Russian uh, trade documents and I was seeing that there were all sorts of um, reports to say that these DJI goods, whether directly from the company or from their sort of distributors or third parties, were reaching Russia. And DJI has said, you know, actually back in um, April, it had said, April 23, it had said that it had um, suspended all sales to businesses in Russia and Ukraine. But, you know, it still was happening and there just wasn't enough compliance there. Yeah, I guess also to your points from earlier around the way that, you know, third party intermediaries in other countries are potentially buying those drones and then getting them into Russia. That's a that's a big part of the equation as well. Technology in military equipment in war, modern warfare is, you know, integral, right? Um, yeah. So cracking this problem could be very significant, could change, you know, completely. Russia's ability to be able to fight on the battlefield exactly. or fight wherever. Um, yeah. So why is not, why are we not hearing more about, you know, governments and uh, putting pressure on businesses to do, or, or, or is that happening behind the scenes? I think to some extent it is happening. Um, there was a July US intelligence report that was saying, look, we know that China is playing an increasing role in sort of bringing these products into uh, Russia and the companies are involved in that too. And so <laughs> one being optimistic would say there's obviously a lot of work going on behind the scenes to make sure that these businesses are compliant with the sanctions. But, you know, also speaking to some of the people um, who have been delving into research on this, they're saying, look, there's just not enough. There's just not enough being done still at this stage to make sure that these companies are being compliant. Um, so it really needs to be a lot stricter. The, the penalties have to be a lot harsher, maybe, to make them comply. Because as you say, you know, technology is so critical to modern day warfare. And if this continues, not only will the sanctions not be working for this particular conflict between Russia and Ukraine, but what hope do they have of either sort of preventing um, a future conflict or being used in the case of one too? I think the, the chip conundrum is, is a difficult one, I think, to solve because in terms of the countries that are able to make the most advanced chips in the world, the, the manufacturers are in South Korea and Taiwan mainly. Um, and, you know, it's all, you know, the US can certainly uh, speak to those two countries and prevent I guess, some of those most advanced chips making their way there. The problem is, as we spoke about earlier, it's not the most advanced chips that are required for military applications. And so China's own chip manufacturing firms are most likely at this stage, and from what I understand in terms of their development, able to probably make the microchips, the semiconductors required for military applications. And so unless there's any kind of way the US can stop China from exporting these chips, which is un highly unlikely, um, then, you know, that route's going to be open, um, whether directly or indirectly. Yeah, but, but it's not just the US, Taiwan and South Korea that can make these semiconductors. As you said, they're not the most intelligent of chips. Yeah. And, and so actually the need for buying items that contain these chips may not actually be needed anymore if, if 
that does happen if if yeah. if China are able to develop those those specific chips. Garen, yeah. sort of, have, have you? What, what's been happening more recently? I know we spoke about sort of the China story you were reporting last year. I know you reported a little bit more about specifically on Western tech this year making its way into into uh, Russia and its military application. What kind of are some of the, the next flashpoints to keep yeah. an eye on? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, certainly I will be de- delving further into the role that China is playing. We've seen an uptick in um, their exports to Russia of um, what are called CNC tools. So these are computer numerical control tools. What do they do? They're widely used in the kind of aerospace and automotive um, and defense industries. And their applications include like the production of weapon hulls and um, aircraft parts, missiles, drone components, etc. So these are these are the kind of tools, again, that previously Russia may have imported from the West. But as we've seen those supplies, um, sorry, those trade flows go down, China has been stepping into that. Um, also, another area that I've been looking at is kind of the increased supply of armored vehicles vehicles to Russia from China and um, sort of um, other synthetic materials, which are, for example, aramid fibers that can be used in um, military vests and things like that. So there's a whole case of other items that are maybe not entirely technology focused, but they're clearly doing a lot to sort of bolster Russia's um, Russia's military and their sort of efforts um, to defeat Ukraine's counteroffensive, let's say. Just a final question from me is, you know, this story is snowballed and unfolded as you've explored it. How have you found the whole thing? Because I know you've reported on Morning Joe on, uh, you know, <laughs> live on television about it. And you must feel quite attached to it. I do quite. I do quite. And it's already, what, a nine-month baby. So I guess it's, <laughs> it's only just nascent at the moment. But it will continue to, to grow as we see that, obviously, this war doesn't seem to be reaching any kind of resolution anytime soon. So we will continue to see um, how important these continued trade flows are and how maybe lacking at this stage the sanctions are, but of course we'll be expecting those to continue to ramp up and maybe have some impact. I mean, one shred of um, of light from this um, recent kind of analysis suggests that, you know, actually sanctions are working in some places. You do see a bit of a downtick in the supply of critical components and things like that, but it's obviously not to the extent that we would like. But there's some indication it's working, and I think it's really important now that Western allies are going to want to show that they do have an effect because, again, it's going to be a way for them to signal, look, don't think about any other conflicts internationally um, because this is the effect, this is a crippling economic effect that our sanctions could have. Subscribe to the Squawkbox Europe Express podcast. Join Steve, Karen and myself, Arabile, in unscripted and dynamic debate around the day's top stories with first and exclusive interviews of the best in business and global newsmakers, original points of view and instant analysis of the latest business news and key market themes. Get set for the day ahead. Squawkbox Europe Express podcast, now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Let's find out what else is happening in the world of tech. Jack Ma, our listeners probably heard of him, and his Alibaba co-founder, Joe Tsai. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay, good, good. Um, have bought more than $200 million worth of shares in the company, in Alibaba. The company's had a bit of an interesting time of late, hasn't it, Arjun? Yeah, very interesting time. This was a company that was once valued at more than $800 billion. More recently... It's about $170 billion. 
So there's been a big fall from grace to some extent, and a large part of that is because of the regulatory crackdown we saw in China, specifically aimed at at Jack Ma in particular. Um, There's a view amongst China watchers that Beijing didn't like how outspoken Jack Ma was uh, about how he had some sort of veiled criticisms of government policy um, and sort of they went after his empire. Um, and, and you've seen that reflected, as I said, in, in Alibaba's um, stock and valuation. The problem is it's failed. The company has failed to regain international investor confidence. A lot of investors are questioning, can this grow again at the pace that it used to? It was one of the fastest growing companies in China. Does it have the innovation? Does it have the smarts to, to really compete uh, as it faces rising competition? And I think by both Jack Ma and Joe Tsai buying, you know, roughly, I think, combined more than $200 million worth of stock, it's supposed to signal confidence. I think it's supposed to signal confidence to Jack Ma, the founder, one of the co-founders of Alibaba, uh, and Joe Tsai, the other, one of the other co-founders, is, is back, is buying, putting their money where their mouth is, saying, we think we've got a turnaround story here. We think we can turn this bear moth around. And I think that's really what it's all about, improving investor confidence and also employee morale, I'd say as well. Yeah, um, but also that the share price is maybe at a good price to buy as well. So, yeah, no you doubt know, they see it that way. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, the share price has gone up, I think, 8% uh, yeah. off the back of, of that um, $200 million uh, acquisition. But um, let's see how that plays out. But um, a big move, uh, nonetheless, for Alibaba. Okay, another story, uh, which I know, Karen, um, you've written about this, is uh, German software company SAP restructuring, eight, <laughs> I use the word restructuring, 8,000 jobs um, in a push to AI. Yeah. Uh, interesting story, this, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And um, very forthcoming and vocal in their move to do this. They say that these are not going to be job cuts per se. Um, they say that the headcount will remain the same um, by the end of this year. But this is a move to focus more on artificial intelligence. And so these workers, the intention is that they'll be reskilled and moved around um, to other parts of the business. And yeah, it's been part of its ongoing push to kind of re, um, refocus the business. First, it was a move into cloud computing, which it says is still kind of firing on all, all cylinders, as they say, um, and still a huge growth area when you look at their forecast going ahead, but also artificial intelligence being the buzzword at the moment and clearly somewhere where they see huge growth potential. That's something that they want to focus on. And, you know, investors seem quite buoyed by that. The share price um, soared 7% this morning um, to an all-time high, actually. So it's, it's a big and probably exciting day for SAP, they think. Fascinating story, because this is one of the first major, major, major use cases of AI being infused into business, uh, SAP talking about the way it wants to bring AI and improve efficiencies, et cetera, et cetera, but then the impact on the jobs, which we've been speaking about for years. And you're seeing here in a restructure, what Karen mentioned there was so interesting that there wouldn't be a reduction in headcount. So what they're trying to say is, yes, AI is disrupting all these jobs, but we think we can find new jobs for these people, reskill some of them. And that's been a whole part of the debate. Does AI wipe out jobs or does it create new ones and does it give the chance for people to to upskill or reskill in some way in the age of AI? But the whole thing that I imagine investors are thinking is, oh, great, it, it, we're going to cut costs. Yeah. Mm. But 
but if they're saying no, 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 we're not getting rid of the jobs. They're you know they're they're just going to be retrained. Yeah. Then that's not necessarily cutting costs, is it? Well, no, no. But it's more about the growth trajectory and what they think this kind of investment will then do for the company in the longer term. You know, they see this as a new frontier, so um, they want to be probably worthy of the investment exactly, and they they want to be a leader in that space. But does it? I mean, the question is. Does it create new roles with the same wages? It could cut costs because mm-hmm. those new roles may be lower paid jobs. We don't. Know it yet. could just be standing and monitoring and watching, yeah. in case the AI, you know, has a problem. And they may cut down hours. Mm-hmm. They may, yeah. It could be, yeah. And the CFO said, you know, we can't exclude that there won't be some involuntary departures as well. So those who don't decide to reskill or sort of move around in the business, then you know. That's the inevitability, I suppose, of these kind of changes. I think we should watch this story closely because it it's, it's a major, I think, real-world example now mm. of all the things we've been discussing. Yeah. Okay, uh, and the final story we're going to uh, look at is uh, Dutch chip firm ASML, which makes a machine required in the manufacturing of the world's most advanced chips. We talked earlier about the you know least intelligent chips, and now we're talking about the most advanced chips. Um, but it, uh, that company has seen its revenues and profits perform better than expected, a lot better. Yeah, big year for, for, for ASML in 2023. But what was important and I think interesting was 2024, their outlook there. They said that revenue in 2024 is likely going to be similar to 2023. So basically roughly flat. Um, what does that tell us about the broader chip market? We saw a huge boom last year in specifically for NVIDIA chips, uh, those those GPUs or graphics processing units that have been used to train these huge AI models. Um, is ASML's sort of flat revenue trajectory this year signaling a slowdown in the chip market? I think that's a big question here at the moment. Now, ASML doesn't sell to NVIDIA. It will sell to companies like TSMC, like Samsung, like Intel, who then go on to make TSMC in particular, the chips for NVIDIA. So if TSMC is not buying any more machines, is it saying that they feel that demand isn't going to be as strong as last year? Or are they saying that, you know what, we bought a load of machines last year and the year before, we're ready, we've got enough capacity for the demand that is going to be there this year. And so we have to see how that kind of plays out and whether what we can read into ASML's 2024 projections uh, means for the actual end product, that chip that NVIDIA ends up selling or AMD or, or any of these companies as well. So, yeah, just just one to keep an eye on. Okay. Before we wrap the podcast, we have, of course, got to do Stats of the Week. I, 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 in the back of my mind, I have been going, what, like furiously searching the internet. No, I haven't. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm struggling on this one. But let, let's hear it again. Stats of the week. 200 billion US dollars. Anyone got it? I have a guess. Um, I oh, don't All right, feel... you're going for it then. <laughs> this is when I go, I'll yeah, that's what I was going to say. You need to write down your answer yeah. and show it to Adam yeah, first. Yeah. Um, that's a good shout. You should write down your answer, Tom. I don't, <laughs> or, I yeah. don't have a pen. Okay. Um, well, just... I promise you, I, I, okay. I'll think all of right. something. Go, go. Yeah. I mean, I suspect it's wrong and it's quite unrelated to this conversation. But just a fun fact out there, the forecast for the um, obesity drugs market is... $200 billion in valuation by the end of this decade. That's wow. the potential that potential analysts answer. see it growing to. So That's there's a fun fact that it might not be the right one. Just pulling She's making you look stupid. I know. Uh, she's come up with Can't a better, better than my 30 seconds of Googling. <laughs> um, 
All right, Dom, what have you got? Well, I'm just going exactly to do what, what I do every week and go, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about chips. So I'm going to say something like the valuation of ASML in 2025. No. No. no I, I didn't think that was right. It's not that. It's also not obesity drugs. I like I threw you all off at the start. It's actually the... Um, the value of trade between Russia and China ah. in the first 11 months of 2023 Quite because easy. I don't think That's we have the full yeah. year figures yet but uh. do you want the, the value of trade between Russia and China in the first 11 months which I believe has eclipsed by a long way oh, the yeah. 2022 figure absolutely. right? So absolutely the 2022 figure I'm just looking at my notes was a record high of $190 billion between the two countries and that was up 30% from 2021 so you can just see here So the first 11 months already eclipsed that yep. we're waiting for the sort of December the figure number. for the final, but but clearly, you know, to the conversation we've been having, it shows uh, China continues to be a very important trade partner for exactly. Russia. Much more coverage to come, I think. Yeah, I, actually, on that, um, if our listeners want to keep across any of the stories that we've discussed um, in the episode, then please head to cnbc.com. And Karen, this isn't the end for your investigation either. No, quite. No, no. So um, my investigations will be restarting and um, I'll be hoping to put out some more uh, research there in, in the springtime. I think we'll be expecting that. Then we'll have you back on Beyond the Valley, I think. Uh, that would I be, look forward to it. That would be great. So thank you, Karen. Thank you. Thank you, Arjit. Thank you, Tom. We'll be back next week for another episode of Beyond the Valley. Goodbye. Beyond the Valley.